Dr. Brent Lacey is a gastroenterologist with a passion for financial management and career coaching. He was able to pay off all of his student loans before even finishing fellowship, which gave him a head start on his retirement savings. He felt God calling him to start teaching financial management classes, so he created a financial discipleship ministry at his church and developed a personal finance curriculum for his hospital. He then became certified through Ramsey Solutions as a master financial coach and has been coaching and teaching these principles to people at all stages of their careers ever since. He has a podcast and blog called The Scope of Practice, which aims to help his audience gain the knowledge we need to run our businesses successfully and manage our personal finances with expertise. We discuss strategies for effective practice management. We start off with staff management, from hiring to training to workplace culture to firing. This is even relevant for physicians who are employed, so may not have as much control, but still set the tone for the office. And he gives ways to influence the office management. For a deeper dive, check out his blog and podcast at thescopeofpractice.com and his free ebook on practice management. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Brent Lacey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks, Brad. I appreciate you having me on. So tell us about the Scope of Practice blog and podcast. What's it all about? Well, I had kind of observed after I got out of fellowship that as a general rule, physicians come out of training and we are really good at being physicians and really lousy at everything else. It's kind of the same stuff that you talk about on Physician's Guide to Doctoring. It's the it's the stuff that we needed to learn in med school to be successful in our you know life and our business and that we just never learned, at least I didn't uh, in my med school. And so that's what I started the scope of practice to do is to give physicians the knowledge and the resources and the tools and the connections that they need to be able to manage their business more successfully and to master their personal finances. Right. We keep hearing over and over, oh, doctors are bad business people. Doctors are bad business people. Um, that's because we're not professional business people. We're professional doctors, but it doesn't mean that there aren't skills that we can't learn. I mean, right? It's It seems to be much easier to get an MBA than it is, is to get an MD. So if, if, uh, if we can do the MD, we can do the MBA stuff too. No, 100%. And I think the, you know, nobody needs an MBA specifically to be able to do this well. You just need to, you know, study this stuff and, and learn it. I mean, it's the same stuff like in medical school. I mean, if you spent four years in medical school learning everything you needed to do and you didn't have the diploma at the end, you would still know everything you need to know to be able to provide effective care. So it's all about learning and this stuff is all learnable. I mean, it's all over the internet. It's on podcasts like yours. It's on blogs like mine. It's on podcasts, you know, like mine. It's it's everywhere. So you can find this stuff. You just got to sit down and decide that it's going to be a big enough priority that it matters enough for you to actually do it. So instead of listening to music on your commute, listen to our podcasts. It's just simple. Yeah. It's just that simple. Just listen to our podcasts. All right. Well, and the beautiful the beautiful thing about that is you can even do that when you're in medical school and residency. I mean, if you've got a 30 minute commute, you can knock out a half hour podcast. You know, if you've got a you know an hour commute, you knock out a couple of them or an hour podcast or something. Yeah, it's absolutely the possible. Doing laundry, doing dishes, cooking, all that stuff, you can definitely be consuming podcasts. So, so, so today we're going to be talking about how to manage your practice. 
So one of the things that I do in, in my practice is we sometimes have to interview our own medical assistants. We really, because of the size of our practice, we don't do much interviewing the front desk staff or, um, or, or, or even other physicians. That's done by other members of the group. But we interview our own medical assistants. And when I interviewed mine, I had no idea what to look for. I had no idea what to ask. I mean, she's wonderful, and I think she does a fantastic job, and it's probably just because I got lucky. So if I were to do it again, how do I go about doing it? What are the questions that I ask? What are the qualities that I look for? Well, first off, I think it's important that you define who you are as a as a practitioner and who you are as a member of your practice and like and what your practice is. So if your practice has a mission statement, if your practice has a set of core values, you know, what is it that you guys care about? And all of your team members need to conform to that. They need to be, you know, imbibing that culture so deeply that it is it is just part of who they are. And so if you're all about, you know, productivity and efficiency and cranking out as many things as possible, then they need to be super efficient. They need to be hard charging. If your whole thing is about compassion and that's like that's the thing that sets you apart is, you know, we're going to spend 45 minutes with every patient because we think every patient's worth an extra 15 minute conversation, you know, they need to be prepared for that. And so it's first off knowing who you are and who your practice will serve. Like what is your set of core values? And then I think the thing that's really helpful is to define specifically what an ideal team member looks like based on that. And there's lots of great ways to do this. One of my favorite books on the subject is actually called The Ideal Team Player. Um, it's by a guy named Pat Lencioni. And in the book, his thesis is that you need three characteristics to have to be the ideal team player. You need to be humble, you need to be hungry, and you need to have high emotional intelligence. So he refers to that as being smart, but he's meaning people smart. And so if you have humility, then you you think of it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of, you know, it's thinking of yourself less. And so, you know, there it's an other's focus. And then if you're hungry, that's the person who's, you know, they're a go-getter, they're motivated, they're, they're always wanting to do just a little bit more. You know, they're, they're, they're seeking out ways to be better without having to be asked. They're bringing you ideas that maybe you haven't thought of. You know, it's someone who's, you know, just really motivated. And then emotional intelligence, you want someone who is going to be, especially, I mean, we are a relational business, right? I mean, with our staff, with our patients, you know, with our referring doctors, we need to be able to pick up on some of those nonverbal cues that I've heard you talk about on your podcast and, you know, be able to recognize when, you know, a, a relationship is maybe strained for one reason or another and to seek ways to make amends for that. So I think that's a great place to start but it also needs to conform to your practice's mission and core values. How do you interview for that, though? Like, how do you interview for humility? How do you interview for high emotional intelligence? I don't, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't know how to frame questions or look for the way they're answering certain questions to assess for those things. I love that you asked this because I really think this is something that physicians by and large do very poorly. And, and I think honestly, business people in general do very poorly. So yeah, I would argue that most people do this poorly. <laughs> I think that's fair. Let me ask you this. When you were interviewed for your uh, like med school or residency, or when you were interviewed for say, you know, the various jobs that you interviewed with, how many interviews did you have for each of those? One or two? You mean uh, for each, like for, for residency, I think I, maybe I had five or six residency interviews and each time I was interviewed probably five or six times. So it okay. ended up being like 30, 35 interviews. 
Okay, so that's more than most. Um, I would say that most of the places and most of the people that I've talked to, they'll interview with one person or maybe two people when they're interviewing for a practice. And that's really- Oh no, residency, sorry, residency. Um, Interviewing for a practice, yeah, I interviewed with like one or two people. But I think when, when you're hiring physicians, it's a little bit different because there's such a paucity of physicians, right? There aren't that many of us. So you're like, you're just looking for someone. And as long as they don't raise any red flags, you're like, great. Okay, you're you're in. Yeah, and I I think that that attitude is 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 incredibly pervasive, and it's one of the reasons why so many physicians' practices are dysfunctional. And I really think that what one of the things that, this is a major mistake that I think physicians make is that we don't pay enough attention to the hiring process. The hiring process is your opportunity to build a stable of thoroughbred racers. Okay. You know, I I love this analogy. Like, I if you're going to run the Kentucky Derby, you want a thoroughbred stallion, right? You don't want a donkey, and it's just so easy because they they you know their silhouettes may look very very similar from a far distance. So how do you tell the difference? Was your original question? I think you need to have a more complex, more long form, you know, more diverse hiring process. This is an absolute reality that one of the most expensive propositions of all of business is employee turnover. And if you've got an employee turnover rate of 20 to 25% a year, you are spending a tremendous amount of money hiring new people and advertising for jobs and training new people. And oh, yeah, you know, and then work, the inefficiencies uh, of the practice, right? Because the absolutely. new people are not going to be as efficient as the people who just left because they don't know a lot of the the smaller details of what they need to in order to be efficient. Absolutely. And so what I think what I think we need to do is we need to think of the hiring process as a process. It's not one or two interviews and then you look at all the check boxes and it's like, eh, you know, it's like, you know, holding your thumb up in the air and going, "Okay, well, yeah, it seems like it's pretty good." It needs to be more in depth and more complex. So, this is the kind of thing that, you know, someone might do would be to start with you know, a basic 30 to 60 minute interview with each of several of the partners. Uh, and then another interview later with one of the junior folks. And then, you know, the other thing that I think is really helpful is when is when you get your entire staff involved. Anytime that there is a team member of yours that is going to interact with a potential hire, that is an interview. And you coach your team that they are functionally interviewing that person. And that's really, really helpful. So if you're familiar with the the Hawthorne effect, the Hawthorne effect states simply that the act of observing a phenomenon changes the phenomenon. So if you are observing a subject and the person knows that they are being observed, they change their behavior, they modify it. And so when someone's in an interview, it's like when you're on a date with somebody, right? You want to put, you don't want to lie to people, but you want to put your best foot forward, right? You want to present the best version of yourself. What you need is you need to get people in a place where they feel like they can let their guard down and show you who they really are. And so if they're just walking through the clinic and they're trying very hard not to make eye contact with people, or, you know, someone goes up to shake their hands and they're, uh, and they're like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I got I to gotta keep moving. I'm, I'm late. I'm busy. Those kinds of interactions can really tell you a lot about the person. You can also take it out, uh, you know, take it to another place or do something more informal. I've talked to places where they'll, um, they'll actually do an interview where they, they take people out shopping, you know, or they'll take them to a baseball game. And it's just, it's, it's a, it's just a, a fun outing, but the whole time they're being observed. It's how oh, yeah. you treat like a, how resi- you treat in a residency the interview when you're going out to dinner, right? Like, yeah, that's exactly. part of the interview. It Absolutely. might not be the official part of the interview, but if you get drunk and act like an ass, you are not getting into that program. 
Oh, 100%. Um, unless you get that way by doing shots with the program director. And then maybe that's, and that, <laughs> that one maybe circumstance and maybe it'll work in your favor. But, yeah. but it, as a general rule, don't get drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, if you can if you can create scenarios where people feel comfortable letting their guard down and yet you are still observing their behavior – you can learn a lot about that person. And this is another place where auditions come into play, right? So if you're, you know, if you have someone that you think might be good, you know, have them come over and moonlight with you, right? And then just kind of see how things go and talk to all the people, all the nurses, all the staff that they interact with and just see how it goes. Or bring in lunch, bring in lunch and have them just eat with the staff because they're going to be a lot more relaxed. And then the staff is going to be able to interact with the people, with the person you're interviewing, and they're going to be able to give you some useful feedback. I think that's a really, that's a really great idea. Have them put, uh, so it was the, the Hawthorne effect. I think, isn't that the Schrodinger effect? Like that you can, you can see a, when you observe a particle, then you can know it's mass, oh, that, but not its direction the, or something like that's that. That's the the Heisenberg uncertainty Hi, principle. Oh, Heisenberg so is wow! I'm impressed. It's it's the it's a social it's the social science corollary to the Heisenberg principle. So it's uh, it comes from uh, an experiment that was done at the Hawthorne Millworks outside of Chicago in the early 20th century, where they observed patterns of. Uh, the employees and trying to figure out who's you know being efficient, who's not, and what they observed is that in the in the period of the experiment, the employees were you know really motivated and really focused, and then after the experiment was quote unquote over, or at least the employees thought it was over, they reverted back to their original behaviors and all their efficiency plummeted. And so what they were able to demonstrate is that people change their behavior when they know they're being observed. Yeah, that's actually I've heard that with going on diets as well, right? Like just by logging what you eat it changes what you eat because if you have to write it down then you're going to it's going to give you second thoughts about whether or not you should be putting that in your mouth yeah it's the same reason why i highly encourage people to um especially when they're early on out of uh in med school and residency is to pay for stuff using cash because if you have to physically hand over a series of $20 bills as you're buying something you feel that in a way that you don't if you're just you know clicking your apple pay or something yeah i never would have bought that peloton if i had to pay with cash <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. Okay, so let's say, to quote Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, you chose poorly. And you you hired someone and you think it might be time to let them go. So how do you decide when that happens? How do you decide that this person has crossed too many lines, as there are too many red flags yeah, it's a great question. At first, can we just acknowledge that you are clearly a kindred spirit that you were just <laughs> quoting Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? Thank you. I knew I liked you. <laughs> um, it's it's a great question. The first thing I think that people need to do is recognize that this happens. And as a leader, you need to not shy away from the issue. Okay. So you think about I think about it like an abscess or like a cancer. I mean, you know, you know the old adage, right? All pus has to be drained. Right. And so if you've got someone on your team that is really toxifying to the culture, you have to excise that. You have to make the difficult choice to just do it. Okay. So then practically speaking, how do you go about that? So you've decided that you're definitely needing to do that. How do you do it? So I think it's very important to work as often as you can to try to rehab people, right? So you spent a lot of time bringing people on board. And if you don't give them the opportunity to change, you don't know if they're capable of that. So I think it's appropriate to 
in the vast majority of cases, give people an opportunity to change. And I think what's important to, when you do that is to be very, very clear about what your expectations are. So let's say you've got a, you know, a medical assistant, they're just not getting the job done. You know, they're okay, but it's like office space. They're working just hard enough not to get fired. Right. And so you sit down with them and say, look, you know, this is just not meeting our expectations. And as a leader, I don't think I've done a good enough job showing you and impressing upon you what my expectations are. That's on me. I'm going to now do that. I want to be very clear so you understand what I'm expecting of you because what I'm getting from you now is not that. And so, you know, sit down, talk with them what your expectations are and be very specific. I want you to be doing your job in this way. I want to see, I want to be seeing this many patients. I want to never be running more than five minutes behind. I expect all phone calls to be, you know, returned to patients within a matter of 12 hours, whatever it is, you know, but be explicit and put it in writing. And then when you go through that with them, that is, you know, day zero and give them a specified amount of time and say, okay, 30 days from now, I expect you to be making significant strides. I expect you to be meeting these expectations. And then once a week or more often if you need to, but at least once a week, at the end of the week, go through with them and say, okay, listen, you're meeting the expectations in this area, still falling behind on this. How can I help you? What are you what are you unclear about? What support do you feel like you need? Give them that chance to rehab themselves. And two things happen that are very interesting actually here. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. Most of the time, it's a matter of, it's a matter what you'll find is that people are in one of two camps. Either they didn't really understand what the expectations were, or they felt like they were meeting it and they just didn't know that they weren't. And then they say, okay, now that I know, I'm going to step up my game and you're good to go. The other thing that tends to happen is very interesting is that when you set out these expectations and then once a week you come back to them and say, you're still not hitting the mark, you're still not hitting the mark. By about week three or so, there's they see the writings on the wall. Like this isn't going to go well. This isn't working. And a lot of times they'll self-select out and they'll say, you know what? I think I need to find someplace else and they'll just leave. And then your problem is solved. And if you get to the end of that four weeks or whatever, and you say, you know, you're just not hitting the mark. We love you. We think you're great. And we think you need to find someplace else that is a better fit for you because this is just not the right place. And then you make the difficult call knowing that you have given them every opportunity along the way. I just want to elaborate on one point that that you made in that if you have certain expectations of your employee, I think it's important that you meet those expectations yourself, right? Like if you expect your if your patients to be called back with results in a certain period of time, well, if you're calling them back with results as well, you know, maybe the medical assistant can tell them, oh, the lab was normal, but you're going to tell them if there are more complex results. You need to lead by example and make sure that you're also returning phone calls within a period of time, um, keeping the visits, you know, making sure you're staying on time as well. If you if you don't want to be more than five minutes behind, like make sure that you're keeping up your end of the bargain and leading by example. Because if you're not leading by example, you're basically giving them permission to also to, to follow your lead. That's 100% right. You have no moral authority if you're going to be uh, holding them to standards that you won't yourself set. So what about the legal ramifications of firing someone? Like, do you need any kind of a paper trail? Disclaimer, right? You're, you're not a lawyer. So this is not legal advice, but nonetheless, are you able to answer that question? What the legal ramifications of of firing someone are? Yeah, absolutely. So you need to have you need to have justifiable cause, and so to that end, you need to have a paper trail of some kind. And so you can download forms like that for free off the internet. Just if you just Google firing worksheet or something along those lines, my bet is you could find something that you could modify to to suit your needs. But yes, it needs to be something in writing. And I would what I would strongly recommend is that if you're doing this as a physician, 
have somebody else in the room with you who is not a physician. Have your clinic manager, have your 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 nursing team lead, have uh, an HR person, somebody that is in the room with you that is a a witness and be able to you know help guide the conversation a little bit because you may be a little bit outside your wheelhouse on that. So yes, I think it's important that you have. To always have two people there with you, okay? And then be very clear and then have it in writing. And I would have every member of the conversation sign and date it so that you have something physical that you can show. That becomes even more important in places like in big bureaucratic organizations like the VA or Kaiser Permanente, for example, in, uh, in, in uh, California. So it is a lot harder to fire people in big organizations like that. This was a, a dramatic, you know, a tremendous frustration for me when I used to work at the VA is that, you know, you would have people who were genuinely dangerous. Like for a, a nurse, there's a particular nurse that I remember, for example, that was just a dangerous person to be around patients. And she had been there for 20 years and was just unfireable. It was so painful. And I think the problem was that, you know, people just didn't have the stamina and the the willingness to do what it took to get rid of her. But in places like that, it may take, you know, it, there may be specific policies in place that say you have to, for six months, document consistent failure to meet expectations. And it doesn't work unless you have a paper trail. So you got to have it in writing and you got to have it clear and you need to have another person there that can vouch for you. Well, let's say you're in one of those organizations. That's actually, that's actually an excellent segue to training your staff. So now you've hired someone, now you have to train them. And a lot of our listeners are going to be in a Kaiser or a VA or a large hospital system where they might not be responsible for hiring them. They might not be responsible for training them, but we still can influence how their day-to-day operations go because they still work with us. So let's start with someone like in that situation that maybe has less influence than someone who is the practice owner and runs their own practice. So um, what recommendations would you have for for someone in a large organization that may not have influence on hiring? How can they influence their staff to be what they want? I think there's two aspects to that question. One is how do you address things with the team member? And the second is how do you address things from the process? So let's talk about the team member first. If you're working with someone day to day, and you know, I was in the military for 11 years, so this is, this is right up my alley. I totally understand this. You know, the idea of not having a lot of say over who you hire, right? You just get assigned people. So the, the first thing I would say is that you need, again, clarity, clarity, clarity. Sit down with the person the very first day that they are working with you and tell and establish a relationship and say, listen, the most important person in this hospital is the patient that is right in front of us at any given moment. There isn't anyone more important than that, not you and definitely not me. So everything that we do is about taking care of this patient. Now, what are we going to do in order to ensure that that is done in the best way possible? Here's what I expect. And I think you lay out your expectations for them and say, listen, if you're going to be working with me, this is what I expect. Here's another thing that's really interesting about that. Even if you're not the person in charge, if you say what your expectations are of somebody and they're going to be working with you every day, if you if you are demanding that they are going to be working hard and moving fast and be able to think quickly on their feet and you tell them every day, this is what I'm expecting. Here's what we want to do. Here's, here's how I like to roll. And they can't hack it, you know, then 
they oftentimes will self-select out. They'll go, you know what? This was a lot harder work than I thought it was going to be. I think I'm going to see if I can find another place to work in this organization. So be very clear. The second thing is be willing to stick to your guns. Remember, you are there to, to protect your patients. And so if you have someone who isn't getting the job done or you're not sure if they're going to be able to get the job done, you need to induce a situation where they feel like they need to find another place or you need to figure out a way to help them move on. Now, let's talk about the process though. I firmly believe that as physicians, we have a lot more influence than a lot of times we are led to believe. I talk to so many people when I'm doing when I'm doing some coaching with folks that they just tell me, you know, oh, it's hopeless, my leadership doesn't listen, you know, the administrators don't care about us. And by and large, I think that that comes from a place of frustration and tendency to want to give up or just a certain despondency that they can't change the system. Here's the thing. I have never yet been in an organization or talked to someone that had 100% horrible, awful people that worked there. Those places go out of business. It's just not, it's not a thing. And so you can find people that care enough to listen that are in a position to be able to leverage some influence. Sometimes it's just a matter of finding out who it is. If and the the thing I like to tell people is that if you're gonna play the game, if you're gonna win the game, you have to know what the rules are. One of the things that becomes very helpful is figuring out what is the process for that. Is the hiring done by the department head? Is the hiring done by us a committee? of just random people that hire everybody in the entire hospital. And so if you can figure out who it is that does the hiring and start getting with them, the more that you talk to those folks, the more that you you know work with them, the more that you tell them what your mission is and how you want to achieve it, the more likely they are to be able to say, okay, well, that, that sounds good. That helps us you know, guide our thoughts as we're thinking about who to hire for you. Um, so, so don't doubt that you can make a difference. Sometimes it's just a matter of figuring out what the process is and then trying to insert yourself into it. You've mentioned a couple of times, like the the workplace ethos or your, you didn't use the term, but like mantra, the the philosophy of your workplace, right? So you need to first decide if you want to be the McDonald's of dermatology or you want to be the per se, which is this like, you know, three Michelin star, uber fancy Manhattan restaurant. So which one do you want to be? So how... how First, which what are you? Like what's your workplace philosophy? If you're if you're hiring someone new, what are you gonna tell them about your workplace culture so that they know what your philosophies are? My my mission for my team, and this is what mission, I said. Like your mission, thank you. Mission. Your mission yeah. statement. Yes. So so this is this is what I tell all the people that start, that come to work for me the very first day. These are the things that I tell them. When you work with me. I want your brain engaged all the time. This is not a place where we coast because if you coast and you stop paying attention and a patient dies, that's just not okay. So your brain is always engaged. The second thing is we are a team unit. We are all about helping each other out. The quickest way to make me turn against you is for you to say the following four words, that's not my job. Okay. If I ever hear that from somebody, immediately we are having a very abrupt conversation. We are all about the team. We are all about helping each other out. And it's all about, and ultimately then it's all about the patients. And so we're a team player. We're team players. 
our brains are engaged, and we work hard to see as many patients and deliver the best care that we possibly can. And I tell people, listen, from the very first day, I define us as an elite team. And I think that is actually really a, a great rallying cry for the people that come to work for me, is they see themselves as elite. They, you know, Very often, I refer to them as the A-team. So, I mean, I know that's kind of an 80s-tastic reference there for <laughs> some folks may not get that. Um, but, you know, I refer who, to my... So who, my, who in the A-team are you? You're happy. Uh, uh, probably. <laughs> I'd say Mr. T, but I don't know if I could pull <laughs> off the uh, the Mohawk. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but I'll, I'll tell him, like, you know, I'll, I'll tell him straight up, periodically, you know, not everybody can play at this level. It's okay that not everybody can hack it. It's, we are going to be better than everybody else. You know, I'll, I'll use superlatives like that so that the team recognizes that this is an elite place to work and they they come to see themselves as that and they come to expect that of themselves and of everybody else and we get rid of people that can't hack it and i always tell people this is a camp it's not important that everybody gets to play and so if we've got people that you know like this is just not their speed it's okay. We're never mad about it. It's like, you know, uh, this was not really the best place for you. We need to find something that's a little a uh, little more your speed. And then, you know, we just we just keep on trucking. How do you know how many people to hire? Um because like you right, you got this elite team, so I would imagine that they're somewhat more efficient than let's say the less the less elite. So how do you figure out how many people to hire? Because if you you can maybe hire some more elite people that are some, you know, maybe a bit more expensive and then you don't have to hire as many or you hire more people, but maybe pay them less. But if you hire too many people or pay them too much, then the overhead is too high. Uh, but if you hire too few, then they're overworked and you have a suboptimal patient experience and the efficiency is down. So how do you know, how do you answer a question like that? How much to pay people and how many to hire? So it's so let's come back to the paying people as a second thing. So the, let's address the other one because that's a little easier. How do you know how many people to hire? You hire people when you have a job that needs to be done that nobody on your team is qualified to do. And you hire someone when there is more work than can reasonably be done by all the current members of your team. And that honestly goes back to your team's mission. So if, if you're going to be like, to use your example, if you're going to be the McDonald's, uh, you know, and you're going to produce, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're going to have, you know, 300 patients a week rolling through your clinic of three docs or whatever, um, I'm making these numbers up, but you know, you get the idea if you're, if you're seeing that many patients and you need, you know, each of your medical assistants to be able to run, you know, 30 patients a day or something, then, you know, you need people who can do that. If your goal though, is to spend more time with patients and take in fewer patients and do a little bit less revenue, then you only need people that can see patients every 30 minutes, let's say. So, um, so a little bit, it kind of depends on what your mission is, but when you have a new job that you want done by someone who, who that no one on the team is qualified to do, then that's when you start creating a new position. And either you're hiring someone for that position or you're training someone on your current team to go step into that role and then their spot is now vacated and needs to be filled. So you can go either way. As far as how to pay them, uh, it, it massively depends on where you live in the country in terms of you know what your what the average of you know salary of something is going to be. Uh, it also depends a lot on what qualifications are required. And it depends on how much money you have, honestly. So I never recommend people paying more than 
well, I'll say it this way. Don't pay more for a position than you are getting in return from that position. So if you're, let's say you're hiring a nurse practitioner as an example to, you know, help with, you know, doing some of your follow-up visits for your ENT practice, for example. If you've got a nurse practitioner that is, you know, billing and collecting, let's say $45,000 a year, and you're paying them $65,000 a year, you're losing $20,000 a year on that person. It's not worth it, right? So they need to be able to generate more revenue than, uh, than they are, than you are paying them. Otherwise it's a net loss for the business. Arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's honestly that simple. And so, yeah, make sure you're hiring for the right role and and not just, you know, saying, you know, it'd be nice if we had a couple more people hire with a purpose, have a specific role, a specifically defined set of criteria that you want those people to be meeting. So you mentioned a nurse practitioner and my practice actually doesn't hire advanced practice providers because our business model is when an office is so busy that the patients have to wait to be seen because one of the things that we pride ourselves on is being able to get patients in quickly. You have an ear infection, you have a peritonsillar abscess, you have a nosebleed, like we're going to try and get you in that day. And so in order to do that, we need to have availability. So what happens is when an office gets so busy that there isn't availability, what do we do? We hire a new doctor. So we don't hire advanced practice providers because uh, we're able to fill those spots. Maybe if we lived in an area where it was harder to find doctors, but we're in New York. So a lot of people want to live in New York. It's easy. It's, it's not that easy, right? We have to make it really appealing to work with us, but that's our model. We hire a new associate. So I've never really worked with advanced practice providers outside of, say, in the hospital. So what first, what role do they serve in your practice? So... Yeah. And let's, let me preface this by saying it's going to be a little bit different depending on your practice. But for example, in GI, one of the primary uh, things that we will use our nurse practitioners and our PAs for is doing the simpler, you know, initial visits. So obviously like a peritonsillar abscess, that's something that you're going to see, right? So, or, um, or I'll give you an example from GI. So somebody who's coming in that has really complex fistulizing Crohn's disease or some really complex, rare genetic condition, I'm going to pretty much be seeing that because that requires a significantly advanced level of medical training. Please hear me. If you're a nurse practitioner or a PA out there, I'm not trying to tell you that you're seeing all the easy, simple stuff. That's not the point. The point is that I can see a visit for someone for a screening colonoscopy in 10 minutes. All right. And so can you. But if if I am able to instead go and do a procedure during that 10 minutes that you're able to see the, you know, the clinic visit and I'm able to bill more for the procedure, then that is a net that is a net win for the business. And I, I'm increasing my revenue. So one of the ways that we utilize our advanced practice providers is in is especially in clinic, is them being able to see clinic that generate the need for procedures. And then that puts me in the procedure suite more. And so if I'm spending 70% of my time in the procedure suite billing at, you know, a much higher rate, then I am making a lot more money for the business than if I'm seeing 70% clinic and only 30% procedures. So you don't necessarily have to have an APP that is, that is directly bringing in more revenue than they are costing. But if they generate a net revenue for the business based on the activities that it allows me to do, then that's a net win. So I think you answered this earlier. But I just, I think it 
warrants reiterating. So the, the question is, how do you make sure that their time, the advanced practice providers, right, who are expensive for a practice because they command high salaries, so how do you make sure that their time is being optimally utilized and they aren't performing tasks that could be performed by other staff members? Now, I think you, you kind of answered that already by, you know, you just, you make sure that there is a need for them before you hire them, right? So I think that's the answer, but could you could you elaborate on that a bit more? No, it's a great question. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in this subject, there's a book that I think every physician needs to read, every leader needs to read called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And one of the concepts he talks about in the in this book is called Good to Great. One of the concepts he talks about is the idea of your company as a bus. And in order for the bus to get where it's going, you need three things. You need to have the right people on the bus. You need to have the wrong people off the bus and the need to have the right people in the right seats on the bus. So to your point, you know, you're trying, you want to get, it's not just enough to hire the right people. You need to have them doing all the right jobs. And so you need to start with this fundamental premise that everything in your business costs money, except for your time, your time makes money. Okay. So if you think of your time as being the primary revenue generation source for the business, every five-minute block of your day needs to be maximally used in revenue-producing activities. And it's the same thing for the nurse practitioners and for the PAs because they can do the same thing. So, for example, one of the things that I like to do is if I've got someone, let's say I'm going in and doing coaching with a uh, you know a, a practice, for example, and trying to help them increase their pro- their productivity. I'll have the nurse practitioners in, in this example sit out and create a calendar or, or even better yet, do a daily log of every 10 minutes that they're doing, like every, like everything that they're doing for 10-minute blocks for every day for like a week and have them tally up their time and see how much time are they spending actually talking to patients, how, many t- how much time are they spending doing phone calls, how much time are they doing answering patient emails, doing prescription medication refills. And then I want to see what percentage of that time is actually spent doing activities that generate revenue or doing activities that only they can do? Because there's going to be some things like, for example, more nuanced clinical questions from a patient. You can't farm that off to a medical assistant with insufficient training. That's not okay. But uh, as an example, if it's someone who needs a medication refill and the nurse practitioner spends 10 minutes figuring that out, that's too long. Instead, coach your nursing team to go through the patient's chart and bring you a prescription that says, and that, that you know they have researched and said, okay, according to your last note, this patient was on Prilosec, 20 milligrams BID. They get it from this pharmacy. Um, this is what I think you uh, would have wanted based on the note that you wrote the last time. I just need you to sign off on it. That is a 30-second chart review for, your, for you, not 10 minutes hunting and writing a prescription. So train your team to tee you up. So it's you know, so I'll give you another example. So when I have, when I first had uh, an admin assistant working with me, and a patient would call, she would leave messages that would say things like, "Patient has concerns." I don't know what to do with that. I mean, that's I, I'm going to spend probably five to ten minutes looking up the patient's chart to remember. Okay, I saw this person three years ago, and I, I don't remember their story well enough, and I don't know what they're they're calling about. I'm going into this blind, and like you know, like we've talked about before, that that conversation takes a lot longer. So if instead they bring me a thing and says this patient is getting ready to go overseas. They think that they need certain vaccinations, but they're concerned because they're on an immunosuppressing medication. They want to know which vaccinations are okay. Okay, instantly, I go to my vaccine file in my head, and I have the answer to that question in 10 seconds, 
right? And so when they put the ball on the tee for me like that, I can just, you know, step up and happy Gilmore the thing in 400 yards down the fairway. But if I have to sit and, you know, hunt in the bag for my ball and then hunt in the bag for my tee and then pick the right club, it takes forever, right? So get your staff to do all of that, um, that pre-work that sets you up for just uh, executing the task immediately. How do you get your staff to do that? Um, I'm trying to envision how I would give my staff the feedback to let them know that that's how they need to team me up. How can I do that without making them feel like I'm chastising them or patronizing them or right? Like how do I, if a, if a staff member comes to me and says, Oh, the patient has some concerns. Can you call them back? How do I give them constructive feedback without making them feel bad? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So I like to frame it as coming back to taking care of the patients. And sometimes it's helpful just to bring it up as a way to say, take it out of the realm of the personal and into the realm of the business and say, thank you for bringing me this in a timely manner. I appreciate it. This is good. This is a great start. Let me tell you how this would be actually more helpful to me to um, have you do this because I really appreciate that you do this and you, you should tell them that like, you know, tell them you appreciate it and mean it, right? Because they are doing good work for you, right? So, but if you've got someone who's doing work for you and it's only okay, then you're not doing them any favors by failing to actually address it in a direct fashion with them. Because what's going to happen is it's going to bring resentment over time. You know, you're going to go six months of them bringing you, you know, phone messages that say patient has concerns. And every time they walk into your office, you're going to roll your eyes and you're going to be upset and you're going to be annoyed and they're going to sense it. So don't shy away from that tough conversation. Just, you know, say, Hey, listen, I really appreciate that you're doing this. However, it would be more helpful if I could show you a different way of doing it that would be even better. You know, so acknowledge that they're doing good work, but then directly and clearly tell them what your expectations are and frame it as, you know, listen, we're trying to take care of as many patients as possible. And if I have to hunt for 10 charts a day for 10 minutes a piece, that's uh, 140 minutes and we're an hour and a half behind by the end of the day. And I don't want you to get in a, be put in a position where patients are, are just yelling at you all the time. Why is the doctor running an hour and a half late? He's always running an hour and a half late. So if you can help me with this, then it'll make the whole clinic run smoother and we'll have much better experience throughout the day. And then you frame it as being part of the team mission. So it's not like they're screwing up. It's how is their contribution going to be best utilized in order to further the mission of the team? And if you've got a stable of thoroughbreds, they're going to pick up on that. They're going to get it. If you've got someone who's really easily offended and they're wearing their feelings on their sleeves all the time, that may be an opportunity for some actual direct feedback and say, look, I love you. I think you're great. And I need you to be less sensitive, you know, and that's, that's not how you say it, obviously, <laughs> you know, they're just feeling stuff them down, right? That's not going to work. <laughs> but, but sometimes having that feedback can actually be really, really valuable. I think that's more of a, a side issue. I think if you focus on, I think it's how they think about themselves, right? Like if yeah, they're, then they probably have some confident self-image issues, but they're, if they were pretty confident, they're less likely to take it like that. So I think it's, it's helpful. Like you said, frame it in such a way as like, you're really, you start off being positive. Listen, you're doing a great job. I appreciate all the work that you're doing, but this would be more efficient. And then you'd be less likely to be yelled at by patients who, because I'm running behind, if you would just do that, right? Like to help it, help frame it in such a way that it's something that affects them. 
Not like that's that's huge. My time if you don't do it, but rather like this is how doing it this way is going to make your life easier. That's huge. You know, one of the things I tell I tell people all the time is when you're a leader, you are not the hero of your story. So if you're telling a story about your clinic or you're telling a story about the life and times of, you know, practice XYZ, you as the leader need to not be the hero. You need to be the guide. Okay. So if you look at if you, you know, think about like, you know, Star Wars. The weakest character in that story is Luke Skywalker. You know, he's 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 fumbling, he's 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 not confident, he doesn't have the good skills. So who's the guy who's really, you know, effective in that movie? It's Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's Yoda. So as the leader, you want to be Yoda. You want to help that person be the hero of their story. So I loved how you framed that, that it's okay, how can I help you succeed? You know, I want to make you look so great to the patients. I want our patients to love interacting with you. I want our patients to think so highly of you that you are exceptionally competent because I know that you are and I want you to be able to portray that. That's a great way to frame that. You know, I was writing my bio last night uh, for a podcast because they wanted they wanted a copy of my bio and I was doing it. I had my wife review it and she's like, you really have to spice it up with a little more about yourself. And really you have to put in there Loves to, to will take any opportunity to quote '80s movies. And Brent, I really appreciate what you did there with the uh, uh, with, with the Star Wars reference, because yeah, because I could br- pretty much recite the entire all all, all three of the original movies um, from back to front. But that wouldn't make for an excited podcast because you could just you could just well, well to quote well to quote another great '80s movie as you wish. <laughs> love it, love it. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe one of the greatest movies of all time and an even better book. So if you haven't read it. Uh, I have read that. It's very different from the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but also also hilarious. So um, we've really covered a lot about hiring, unfortunately, firing, training your staff, making sure your practice is as optimized as possible and that your time is being used as, as efficiently as possible. Do you, do you have any parting words, any bits of advice, any common mistakes that you see from maybe people that you coach that you want to tell to our listeners? A hundred percent. The number one thing I want to tell people is never doubt that you can change the system. Okay. If you wear the mantle of victimhood, you are going to suffer and probably needlessly. So things are a lot more changeable than we have been led to believe. I can't tell you the number of times that I've had that I've been talking to someone and they said, Oh, you can't change anything. You can't change anything. And then after we do a little bit of of work and a little bit of coaching and they, you know, they come back a few weeks later, it's like, Oh my gosh, I changed four things that have been plaguing me for years. And it was just as simple as finding the right person to ask. So never doubt that the system can be changed. And the best way to do that is by participating in it, by actually taking an active role in deciding that you are going to be an engine of change. Um, Because here's the truth. Physicians, we know what it takes to take care of our patients. I mean, if you look at the statistics nationally, the hospitals that are run by physicians by and large are safer, they are more profitable, and they have better patient satisfaction scores and better outcomes. They are just better. We know what it takes. We are good. Uh, We are hardworking. We are knowledgeable. And we are the advocates that our patients need. So never doubt that you can change things. You just got to start doing it. Brent Lacey, the Scope of Practice podcast and blog. Where can people find you? The best place is going to be the website, which is thescopeofpractice.com. They can link to the podcast from there. And I've got a, a ton of great resources and a lot of great free stuff on there that's available for anyone on 
to learn about personal finances and managing your business better. So it's uh, thescopeofpractice.com. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.